0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. On Sunday mornings, as you know, we've been going through the book of Exodus and we've recently hit what is probably the climax of the book. So after God worked 10 powerful plagues that reveal that he is uniquely the Lord, then he parts the Red Sea miraculously and brings his people through on dry ground. On the other side of the sea, they immediately sing the song of the sea, Moses' song, Exodus 15, 1 through 22. And they worship and praise the Lord. But now in today's passage, here they are, barely out of Egypt, and they've really struggle to trust that the Lord is still good. In other words, they find themselves where we are. The wilderness, wandering, wondering, can I trust the Lord? Is God a good father? Will he provide what I truly need? Now, the Bible says in James that the word of God is like a mirror. And let me just tell you, I see my reflection in today's passage. And it's hard to see, but it's true. Here am I, and here, frankly, are all of us, wondering, is the Lord good as we wander in the wilderness? Can we truly trust God? But I have good news for you this morning. There is grace for grumblers. And there is provision. And in today's passage, it's actually going to be this simple, okay? I don't, I don't want you to lose it. It's really this simple. Bread and rock. Bread, daily grace. Grace. Rock, definitive grace. Bread, everyday provision. Rock, once for all provision. This is how good our Lord is. And today's passage will remind us we don't need to question God's provision. We don't need to doubt God's presence. We don't need to put ourselves in position as God's judge. We can trust that the Lord is good and he provides every day and he provides once for all. Now lest you think that today's passage isn't for you If you're still not convinced 1 Corinthians 10 Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit Paul writes this I don't want you to be unaware brothers That our fathers were all under the cloud And passed through the sea And were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea Nevertheless with most of them God was not pleased Now these things took place as an example For us we read in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10 We must not grumble as some of them did These things took place as an example. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, because God is faithful and he will provide. Now, those two things are the two things in today's passage. God is faithful and God provides. So the title of today's sermon is The Lord Provides. If you need a pew Bible, please take it and turn to page 68. We'll be through pages 68 through 70 of the pew Bible as we see the wonderful thing about God this morning that the Lord can still be trusted as a provider. Now, the first thing we're going to do is see a pattern. I I, I already told you, so it's easy to follow. It's really only two things today. Bread, daily grace, rock, definitive grace. But before the bread and the rock, first the Lord records a pattern of how we as God's people can grumble so that we will see what the bridge is from grumbling to grace. Alright, don't, don't miss this. Alright, we have a tendency to grumble and yet God is gracious. So how do we cross the bridge from grumbling to grace? And the answer is faith. Faith. So we're going to go slow on the pattern and then we'll go faster when it repeats. So look in God's word, Exodus 15. Verse 22, this is what was just read. First we see the pattern, okay? Verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? It only took three days, (laughs) Just, just three days I mean God just parted the Red Sea They just sang about how great he is They saw ten incredible plagues But I do see my reflection here Only three days And they grumble If you have a King James it says murmur The Hebrew word is levan Murmur is a pretty good translation Because the idea is that you sort of whisper complaints Thinking that he won't hear you You know Grumble is a strong term, though, in Hebrew, and it signals hostility. So it's not merely um, grievance or disappointment, but it's but it's anger directed at someone that you think is unfair to you, unkind to you, not good to you. Now that grumbling needs a bridge to move to grace. And that's what God's going to try to teach them here. So look in verse 25. Moses now cries to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. Do you see how quick the bridge happened? Moses turns to the Lord. The Lord can do this, and the Lord immediately does. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. I want to pause on a couple things that are very important. The water was described as bitter. Now, the Hebrew word's given us for us, marah or mar or marim, depending on where it's translated. Do you remember where we came across the word bitter before in the book of Exodus. When was the last time that something was bitter? It's Exodus chapter 1. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. Do you remember the Passover meal? What kind of herbs were they supposed to put on the lamb? Bitter, to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery. So now, once again, the Lord is making the object lesson as clear as he possibly can. I can take what's bitter and make it sweet. Trust me Trust me to provide for you God takes what's bitter And makes it sweet And God is now trying to show them That's the kind of God he is So that's why the end of verse 25 says There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule There he tested them Now the word test might hit you the wrong way You might say test That sounds unfair It sounds like God is purposely just embarrassing them But the word test, nisa Can also be translated train That might be a better term When you were in school, you took tests, but they were meant to train you so that you would learn the subject material. That was the purpose of them. In other words, we might say God is trying to develop faith so that they'll know the way between grumbling and grace, so that they'll have the bridge to access the sweetness that only God has. God is training them through testing so that they will learn to live by faith. When Charles Spurgeon was preaching through this, few hundred years ago, he said about this passage, the wilderness is the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. It's a good description of what's happening in these 40 years. God's leading them through the wilderness so that they can learn the lesson of how to move from grumbling to grace by developing faith. I want you to notice something. Every time God shows us who he is, it's actually for our good. Look in verse 26 now. This is the continuation saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases, that's also the word for plagues, on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am and now we have a new revelation of who God is. He hasn't yet revealed himself this way in the Bible. Here he now is Yahweh Rophe, the Lord your healer. So here's what's happening. In order for them to trust the Lord better, they have to learn all that the Lord is. The Lord is not only a powerful and mighty deliverer who can release them from slavery. He's also a good provider who can take care of their every need. That's the point of the Lord, your healer. Have you ever had a relationship, a good relationship with someone? And over the decades, the more you got to know them, the more well-rounded your love and appreciation for them was. Now you know other things about them that you're even more thankful for. You see, in order for them to trust the Lord, they need to see all that the Lord is. The Lord is not just the mighty Savior. The Lord is also the careful provider, day by day. And they need to learn to trust that and enjoy God for who he is. Now here's how good God is. Look in verse 27. I love this. So in the wilderness, they're complaining about water. And look where God takes them in verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Do you think those are accidental numbers? In Exodus 1, verses 3 through 5, we read about the 12 tribes of Israel that made it to Egypt. And do you remember how many their entire number was when they arrived? Seventy. God is reminding them, I have it all planned out. You can trust me. You don't have to panic. You can be patient because I'm good and I'm wise and I provide exactly what you need. Here he's given exactly what they need. Have you ever had a moment in your life where it was such a blessing? You're like, that was God. Like there's no other way to explain what that, that was a God thing. This, brothers and sisters, is a God thing. God does things to remind us that he is the God that we can trust. But here they've come out of Egypt. They've left slavery. And they're not sure that they can trust God in the way of life in the wilderness. I've shared this once before, but I'll share it again because I think it fits so well. Russell Moore adopted all of his children from overseas. And he adopted several of them from an orphanage in Russia. And when he was taking them out of the orphanage, they struggled leaving here's what he wrote. After we nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight, the two boys we had adopted were in terror. They had never seen the sun. They had never felt the wind. They had never been in a car. And I noticed that they were shaking in the backseat of the car, reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to my new son, Sergey, that place is a pit. If you only knew how much we have waiting for you a home with a mommy and daddy who love you, grandparents, great-grandparents, cousins, playmates, McDonald's happy meals," he said. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid, but they had no other reference points, so they thought of it as home. Here's what he wrote: "We knew the boys had acclimated to our home. We knew they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. When they knew there'd be another meal coming, when they knew they didn't have to fight for scraps, that was the new normal. But I still remember their hands reaching for the orphanage, and listen to this, and I see myself there. You see, in today's passage, we're going to see the Israelites refusing to trust that another meal is coming. Refusing to believe that the Lord has a good purpose and actually reaching back for Egypt. But brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, we see ourselves there. Galatians 4 verse 7 says that when God adopted us, we are no longer slaves, but sons. And as sons, we have to trust the goodness of our father. And the bridge from grumbling to the grace of our father is faith in who he is and what he provides. I know there are some differences between this this historical account and our lives. But there are principles that we need to learn from. Here's the first principle. The Lord is a good provider. And here's the second principle. We need to move by faith to the Lord who provides. So when we see that God is sweeter, then we realize that Egypt is slavery. And our complaints come to an end. Because we can sing, "'Tis so sweet to trust." So the key lesson is that God is sweeter. He's sweeter than the bitterness of slavery. The freedom he gives is better than the harshness of bondage. But in everyday questions, when you and I face challenges at the heart level, what do we feel about God? Do we think he's good? He's wise. He's right. Or do we find ourselves saying, this can't be good. This can't be wise. This can't be right. Well, the location changes, but not the pattern. So I gave you the pattern in then of chapter 15, verses 22 through the end. That's the pattern, but now we're going to see it play out two more times. They move from the wilderness of Shur and the springs of water at Elam, and now they come to the wilderness of Sin, and it's rather aptly named, I would say. So remember, you only have two points on your handout. Here's number one. The bread the Lord provides every day. The bread the Lord provides every day every day. Look in Exodus 16 now with me. And we do have a little more text here, and I may read some of it a little faster, so I don't want to lose you. Okay, so Exodus 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. They've not been gone long. Verse 2, and the, don't miss this, the whole congregation, of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now, I want you to make sure that you understand that they truly have nothing to complain about. I want to make sure you understand this because you could be thinking, well, they're starving, right? But they aren't. Because in chapter 17, we'll read that they still had all their livestock. This means they could have had milk whenever they wanted. They could have made cheese whenever they wanted. If necessary, they could have eaten meat. They're not mad because they have no provision. They're mad about the menu. They're mad that God hasn't given the thing that they think they ought to have. These aren't needs. These are greeds. This is the danger of us when we start questioning whether or not God actually really has been good or good enough. Verse 3, And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, which it wasn't that good. For you have brought us out of this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now I've been hangry before, so I can't get too judgmental. But I do see in verse 3 some things that are completely absurd. Absurd. Surely their life in Egypt was not actually better And not only do they want to go back They wish they would have died by the hand of the Lord Would that we have died through the ten plagues Please don't miss the sinfulness of this statement They're saying, Lord, life before you Life without you is better than life with you See, there's a corruption inside of these people That needs to be brought out. Let me put it this way. God has brought them out of Egypt. Now he needs to work Egypt out of them. This point is very important because sometimes we think, because we hear people say this in our culture, that the only thing that needs to change for us is our circumstances. If we were in different circumstances, if we were in a different environment, then we'd be totally different people. Now, surely our circumstances have some effect on who we are, but it is wrong to say they are the entirety of who we are. There's a corruption inside of us, whether we're in Egypt or in the wilderness. No matter where we are, there's something in us that needs to be worked out. And God in his grace is working out what needs to be worked out of them. And that's what he does for us, too. So look now in verses 4 through 8, and I want you to notice the pattern again. God meets grumblers with totally undeserved grace. They just got done saying, we would rather have life without you. Look what he does for grumblers. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. I would not do that for them. (laughs) And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. That I may test them. Remember, train faith in them. Whether they will walk in my law or not. They need to learn to trust me. All I ever say to them is what's good for them. Verse 5. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening... You shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And yet God gives grumblers grace. Now the hard issue really is that all complaining, all grumbling is always against God. So look in verse 8. Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat... And in the morning, bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Did you know that all of our dissatisfaction or discontentment is always ultimately against God? A psychologist may call this displacement, which is a fancy way of saying you find the closest punching bag and you hit that. When in reality, you're mad at the person who's sovereign over that. You're mad at the person who put this problem in your life, this person that you can't stand dealing with, this situation that you wish would just go away, this circumstance that you don't know why you're in it, this provision he has or hasn't given to you. All of our grumbling is against the Lord. But let me show you a pattern if you'll look at the verses again. This time I just want to draw out a pattern of how God works. First, I want you to notice that all good things we have are given totally by undeserved grace. Verse 4, this is bread from heaven and that it's for them, people who don't deserve it. Isn't that the theme all throughout the Bible? God so loved the world. God sent his son for us while we were yet sinners. It's always grace from heaven to undeserved people. But that grace is only accessed through faith. Did you see in verse 4, the end of verse 4, they have to go out and gather every day? So the grace is made availed, but the grace has to be accessed. You have to get up, gather, put off, put on, mortify, vivify, etc. Faith, then, is following God's word. Take, eat, trust, believe, turn, repent. All those things are ways that we demonstrate faith, the bridge from our grumbling to grace. In fact, Moses will reflect on this in Deuteronomy 8, and he'll say this in verse 3. God humbled you and let you hunger... And fed you with man in which you did not know so that he would make known to you that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is the whole reason behind all this. God's showing them you can trust me. In fact, I want you to hunger for the Lord. Feast on his word and be satisfied by doing his will. So grace, access through faith. But here's the third part of the pattern. It's always grace, access through faith and it's always to reveal God's glory for our good. Look in verse 7. What will they see when they see God's grace? They'll see the glory of the Lord. The manifest provision of Yahweh Rophe. Of course the glory doesn't go to the person who gathers the bread. The glory goes to the person who gives the bread. And that shows the gatherer that he can trust the giver. That the giver is glorious. Love the giver. Delight in the giver. Trust the the giver cuz he's abundant in his goodness. Look now in verses 9 through 12 this theme is repeated. Then Moses said to Aaron, "Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel because remember all of them were grumbling. Come near before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling." Verse 10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel they looked toward the wilderness and behold the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Is not that phrase familiar? We've heard it throughout Exodus. Everything God is doing is to show who he is so that we will trust and cherish him for all that he is. God's multifaceted, infinite Glory can be learned in part over time, but it takes eternity because He is breathtakingly and inexhaustibly wonderful. The Lord shows us who He is so that we would trust Him. But unfortunately, the pattern returns and some of them do not trust Him. So look in Exodus 16. I warned you that I'm going to read a large section, okay? So, large section if you can stay with me. Exodus 16 verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, finest frost on the ground, clearly a miracle. Verse 15, when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each one of you, as much as you can. You shall take an omer according to the, it's about two liters, to the person that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. When they measured it, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. God's abundant grace. Now, verse 19, Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. Because remember, God has said to them, I'm going to provide for you every day. But to show that you trust in me and don't move your faith from the giver to the gift, I'm not going to do it on the seventh day. By the way, doesn't that prove definitively it's a miracle? I read a couple scholars who tried to argue that the manna was caused by natural causation. But then how did it skip the seventh day every time? Verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath, To the Lord. This is the very first occurrence of Sabbath in the Bible. Bake what you will bake. Boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. And Moses said eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather. But on the seventh, which is a Sabbath there will be none. On the seventh day. Look at this in verse 27. Some of the people still went out to gather, but they found none. Had not God already said, I'll provide for you everything you need. I'll give you a double portion on the six. You can trust me, but they couldn't. Verse 28, the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? The last time that phrase was used in Exodus, it was used of Pharaoh. If you'll be with me, Lord willing, throughout the next several weeks, we're going to notice a very drastic shift in the book of Exodus. We have about 15 chapters where clearly Pharaoh's opposing God's goodness, but then we're going to have a number of chapters where a portion of Israel is just denying God's goodness. Verse 29. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested. On the seventh day. Verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Wait, are you seeing the theme there? When God made the water drinkable, it was actually sweet. When He provided them daily manna, it was actually sweet. It's showing us something about the Lord. His provision is always sweeter. Now, verses 32 through the following. I'll just summarize for you. They show that they kept some of the manna as a reflection and remembrance of God's provision. But I want you to at least look at verse 35. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came into a habitable land. They ate manna until they went into the border of the land of Canaan. In fact, if you were to read through Joshua in Joshua chapter five, manna ends when they first take the Passover in the promised land. So God provides the entire way now, let me apply this a little bit to us. I know that the Sabbath question is one that's very divisive among Christians and the way they think through it. Some Christians argue about continuity or discontinuity, old covenant, new covenant. Christ doesn't abolish, but he fulfills. How do we make sense of the law? And if you don't understand anything I just said, the Lord has been merciful to you. <laughs> that, this makes it much less confusing to you. My wife's grandfather did his entire dissertation on the role of the Sabbath for today. And he was a pastor in South America, and then he was in Kansas, and he wrote his dissertation when he lived in Kansas in, I think, the 1960s. And I remember he was missing a book that he needed. I love this anecdote. So he got in his car and drove to the public library in New York City. That was the only place he could access the book. Praise God for the Internet. There are some blessings for it, I would say. Now, I know the Sabbath is difficult to think through. And we're gonna come back to it in the Ten Commandments and I can give some more theology there, but let me just make a couple points today. The Sabbath principle, the idea of resting and trusting in the Creator, goes back to the creation week. It's much earlier than here. God rests on the seventh day of creation to show a principle for His creation to sustain for their good. The Sabbath is always tempting to break. Because we want to keep up with the busyness of culture because we, if we're honest, like control more than we like trust. To be fair, some people have made the Sabbath legalistic and Jesus deals with this with the Pharisees. We may even fear that the Sabbath will be boring. But can I just tell you um, from my own life, and my father is the most godly man I know and he's my best friend other than my wife. And he is totally okay with what I'm about to tell you because he's learned from it. When I was growing up, my dad worked seven days a week. And most of those days, he worked two jobs. I remember years of my childhood where I didn't see him for days on end. I remember being in elementary school, and he would wake me up in the middle of the night because that was the only chance that I would see him. So worked all day Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, same thing. And there's a kind of person that thinks that's the Protestant work ethic. That is not the Protestant work ethic. You see, the temptation is for us to think that if we could just get ahead, we could secure the outcome. The very purpose of this passage and all the chapters that surround it and the Sabbath principle is that you can trust God to provide even when you're resting. You can trust God to give so you don't need to try to get ahead. Because he's going to give what's sweeter than what you could earn on your own anyway. I want to encourage you this morning. I know we live in a technological age where we can work when we're supposed to be resting. And we can play when we're supposed to be working. Thank you, smartphones. (laughs) But in the age in which we live, I want to encourage you to push against the age in which we live. And learn to rest in God who can work when you're resting. You see, you know who struggles the most with resting? People who were formerly slaves. The Israelites toiled fruitlessly, and all the work they did was given to somebody else. And now that they're out of the slavery of Egypt, the Lord says, Hey, I'll provide for you, even when you're not working. And it's so hard for them to believe that. And you and I, when we come out of a sense of striving and earning and securing... It's so hard for us to believe that we can just take God at his word and rest in him. But let me tell you this morning, we can eat what we did not plant. We can drink what we did not irrigate. We can rest and rejoice because our Sabbath has fully been provided in God's Son. You see, we can live by faith because God has given above and beyond what we would ever need. In 2 Corinthians 9, we read that God makes all his grace abound to us, And then Paul refers to the bread that God made in Egypt, in in the wilderness. In Hebrews 3, we read that they were kept out of the rest because of unbelief. But in Hebrews 4, we read, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever is entered into God's rest, rests from his works just like God did from his. It's not for nothing that Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your soul. This morning, I want to encourage you to rest in Christ and to show that in the way your schedule looks. It's very possible that your schedule is revealing you don't trust that the Lord is a good provider. Your schedule might be so stuffed that it indicates you don't rejoice that the Lord can do what you cannot do. Friend, trust in the Lord. He will provide for you on the seventh what you could never gather on your own. And find that in Jesus, all the requirements of the law are met. Now, if you know the rest of the Old Testament, you know that in Numbers, we write that one of the capital offenses for which someone could be stoned to death is breaking the Sabbath. If that sounds very excessive to you and very harsh to you and very archaic to you, Uh, Maybe perhaps we don't really understand What the Sabbath rest means If I break the Sabbath rest What I'm communicating is this I don't need a deliverer I don't need a savior I don't need a provider I can earn it on my own That is the very way We separate ourselves From the grace of God So number one today the bread reminds us The Lord provides daily grace But now number two We see the pattern again, the rock. The Lord provides definitive grace once for all. Look in Exodus 17 now, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. And here we go again. (laughs) So verse 2, therefore the people quarreled. Notice it's a stronger word than Grumbling. With Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Did you notice the flip? Before, the Lord is trying to train faith in them. Now they flipped. Now they're trying to train the Lord. Now the Lord is in the dock and they sit as judge. Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're demanding their provision on their timetable. In other words, God to them is never more than a genie at best. They're denying God's protection. They're saying now that we're out here, what, we're just going to die? Therefore, they're assuming that the Good work the Lord began, they can't trust him to complete. But they go even further. Would you look down in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 17. He called the name of the place Masan Mirabah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now they're questioning the very presence of God. And yet, God gives grace to Grumblers. Look in Exodus 17, verse 4. Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Grumblers receive grace through faith. And yet the text stops there. It's really odd. Exodus 17, verse 7 is like the end of a thought. The next passage is about the Amalekites. Then after that, Jethro comes on the scene, and you're like, whatever happened with this whole situation? Are they ever going to learn That they can trust God, that he's a good provider. Or are they still going to think that they're never going to have the next meal and that they can't really look to the Lord? And when is this tension resolved? And the answer is 1,500 years later. 1,500 years later, Jesus feeds thousands. At the end of him feeding thousands, the text says something that should sound very, very familiar to you. It says, each one ate as much as they could should that not remind us of this exact provision and then after that how many baskets were left over 12 how many springs were at elam 12 everybody in the crowd should have been thinking this looks familiar But instead of thinking, this looks familiar, they followed Jesus. They actually kind of chased him down when he got to the other side of the sea. They grab boats, they get to the other side, and they first try to play it cool. I love how they try to play it cool. Uh, They say, Lord, when did you come here? I love that they asked that, trying to kind of kick the tires and act like they're not going to really ask what they want. But Jesus knows what they want. So he says this, truly, I say to you, you came seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which only the son of man can give you. They said, what do we do? He said, this is the work of God. Believe in him whom he has sent. Faith In the provision. So they said, Well, what sign will you do to prove the work that you'll perform? And I love this is what the people in the crowd say. They bring it back to the unresolved tension of Exodus 17. The people in the crowd say this Our fathers ate man in the wilderness, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So aren't you going to do that? Jesus said, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. The exact two things they struggled with here. You know what verse 41 of John 6 says? So the Jews, you'll remember this word, grumbled. Grumbled. Here we are 1,500 years later, nothing's changed. And now we're 2,000 years later, and nothing's changed. We can't trust you, God. We can't believe in you. Jesus said to them in verse 43, Don't grumble against yourselves. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And then Jesus climaxes his argument. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and they died. But whoever eats me will not die. I am the living bread, and the world—the life that I give for the world is my own flesh. Now, at that saying, many of them walked back, and they didn't follow him anymore. But some recognized who he was. Among them was Peter. Jesus said to them, will you go too? Peter said, where else will we go? Who else has the words of life? This morning, I want you to see that the two things we talked about, bread, daily grace, and rock— Definitive grace are only fully met In God's Son, Jesus Jesus is the daily bread, the daily grace But here's the good news Jesus gives more than perishing manna He gives his imperishable self And Jesus is not the waiter, he's the meal Take and feast on him But Jesus is not only the daily grace Jesus is the definitive grace The once for all grace Jesus says in John 4, If anyone is thirsty, let him drink of me. He'll never thirst again. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, Jesus says, Whoever has thirst, let him come to me, and he'll receive water apart from price. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the rock that Moses struck was Jesus. Have you ever read that passage and thought, Wait, how could the rock have been Jesus? That doesn't seem to make any sense. Let me try to explain it a little What was the rock struck with, do you remember? The staff What was the staff used to do? It was used to strike the Nile The staff was used as a sign of God's judgment What is struck with the staff Is struck by the judgment of God In fact, in the passages What's going on are all legal things Remember the elders come together And they're going to stone Moses They're having a legal trial the two terms that are used there, Masa and Meribah, are used in Hebrew for trials, formal trials. So this is a former formal trial where the rock that is struck is the provision for life. Water rushing out shows the never ending provision. And in the Bible the word rock is used metaphorically for God. So when we put it all together, the metaphorical presence of God being struck as a substitute to give life to the people, surely we see that this is Jesus who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. So what did Jesus do that makes him able to give you bread and water? When Jesus was on earth, he was in the wilderness. For 40 days and Satan tempted him Satan said if you're really the son of God since you're the son of God use your power to turn these stones to bread and Jesus said quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God this is amazing unlike us Jesus didn't grumble he trusted in the Lord to provide when he chose to with what he chose to On the cross as Jesus was nailed there Jesus said I thirst Instead of water he was given vinegar And his response to it was to suffer Saying Father forgive them For they know not what they do Rather than grumbling or rather than complaining He submitted himself fully to the will of the Father See on the cross Jesus shows that he's condemned for grumblers Though he never did And just like how at the tomb Jesus rises victoriously, so after he survived the temptation in the wilderness, he's ministered to by angels. This morning we're going to take communion. And as we take the bread, I want you to remind that it reminds us of everything Jesus provides every day. And as we take the cup, I want you to remember that it's that blood that was shed once for all, the definitive grace that covers us forever. When we take communion, remember that the bitterness is turned to sweetness. Remember the taste of honey to see that the Lord's provision is good. There is grace for grumblers for every day. There is forgiveness for grumblers definitively. And it's by being fully satisfied in God's Son, Jesus. Let me lead us in prayer this morning. Father, I, I confess that I grumble and question your goodness even after seeing your deliverance so powerfully in my life. And so as I read the word of God, it is a mirror that reflects to me a picture of who I am apart from your grace. Lord, thank you for your goodness and grace that you give to those who don't deserve it. Thank you, Lord, that you sent the bread from heaven, not because the grumblers deserved it, but because you're a good God. Thank you that you sent your son to the world, not because the world was so good, but because you're so good. Thank you, Lord, that even when we find out that we don't have what we think we ought to have, we can trust in the Father who always gives what's right and best at the right time. So help us this morning, if we're Christians, to not think it'd be better to go back to Egypt. But Lord, perhaps someone is here today who hasn't crossed from death to life. And as you brought them through the Red Sea, I pray that you'd bring people to salvation through your Son, because only He perfectly lived. And only He died the death that we deserve as people who have broken the trust that is demonstrated through the Sabbath principle. And as He rose victoriously, Lord, He offers Himself take, eat, so as we partake in communion, Lord, let our remembrance be of the Lord Jesus. May our faith be able to say that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, sweeter, in fact, than anything in this world. And may we sing with truth, tis so sweet, to trust in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.